Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Today's passage is uh, a monumental passage. This is uh, huge. It's really important. And um, I have a, a lot of notes. So the game starts at noon. So I've also got, I've also got a time frame to work with here. Uh, so anyway, um, we've got lots to discuss. So let's dive in. Jake, I feel like I'm a little loud. Is Jake still there? Is that, I think it's in channel seven. If you could turn me down a tiny bit. I feel like I'm whispering and I like to yell. So anyway, there we go. That's good. Hey, so I wanted to just, like I said, we're going to dive in this morning. If you uh, and I just want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, open it up. If you, if you don't have your Bible, follow along on your phone. Um, I, I think it's really helpful to follow along. We'll try to leave this, the passage up on the screen as well. Uh, you're welcome to take notes. Uh, I encourage that. Anyways, I just want to encourage you to, to get in touch with the text this morning as we go. So the first thing we see uh, in this story is something that I think is, is important that we've been paying attention to and we've got to see here. It says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I don't know if that's the official pronunciation, but that's the pronunciation I'm going with. I was told with Bible names, Bible cities, you just say them confidently and move right through them and everyone will think you know what you're talking about. So Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So in chapter 15 and at the beginning of chapter 16, uh, which we studied last week with the story of the yeast and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, we, we've seen that Jesus has taken his followers out from under the teaching of the religious leaders. And so now he's going to establish them. So he's taking them out from the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day. And, and now that they're out from underneath that teaching, we're going to see him establish them under his own teaching. In fact, uh, it, it's here in this passage where we're going to first uh, see or hear or read the use of the word church. And uh, the word church, it's only used uh, four times in the Gospels. Only four times is the word for church used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those occurrences are in the Gospel of Matthew. Today, chapter 16, and then uh, a couple weeks ahead, it's actually used twice in Matthew 18. So this is important. This is one of the first times that Jesus is talking about the church and describing what it means uh, to be the church. And, and here in chapter 16, we're going to learn that Jesus' church will be founded on two principles. The first principle is confessing Jesus through faithful teaching. That's today's message, confessing Jesus through faithful teaching. And the second part, the second half of the gospel, if you will, is following Jesus through faithful living. 
That's verses 21 through 28. So we've got a touchdown's worth of verses this morning and then another touchdown's worth of verses uh, next week. I was always really good at the sevens multiplication tables, you know, 7, 14, 21, 28, 35. Anyway, I'm sporty, but I'm good at math. Anyway, okay, that was supposed to be a joke. Here we go, hard crowd this morning. So uh, anyway, this is an incredibly important passage. Uh, and uh, and it, it's in this passage that we actually have the very first confession of Jesus as Messiah. This is the first time that we see directly Jesus confessed as the Messiah, meaning proclaimed out loud. And so uh, like I've been saying, you know, I was talking about how to pronounce Caesarea Philippi and trying to joke about that, but Geography has been important in our last couple chapters. And, you know, whether Jesus has been in Galilee, around his family and friends, around a bunch of Jewish people, or whether he's been in Tyre and Sidon or in in the Decapolis, it's mattered in these stories. And we think that Matthew is telling us where he is to help communicate what's going on. And so here we find him in Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northeast quadrant of Israel. So it's at the very border of the northeast side. So he is just on the edge of Israel here, okay? So he's far away from home. He's he's pretty far from the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, this town, Caesarea Philippi, as you can imagine, it's named after Philip Caesar, right? Um, This town is home to temples for the Syrian god Baal. It's home to the temple of the Greek god Pan. And then it's also home to uh, a temple for the Roman godhead Caesar, So there are many faiths being practiced in this town that Jesus uh, has come to with his disciples. So like I said, the geography is important here. And so we want to understand, you know, what do you think Matthew means by telling us about the geography here? So we have what's known as Peter's great confession, and it's happening on the border of Israel. Jesus' ministry is on the move. He's been all over the place. The dude is getting his steps in. Big time. And I think that Matthew is trying to communicate to us that as Jesus moves, his ministry moves from the people of Israel to Gentiles, like we saw with the healing of the Canaanite woman, like we saw where the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding miracle was replicated in Gentile territory. And we're also going to begin to see how Jesus' ministry is moving from Galilee, his home base, on eventually to Jerusalem, where he'll be crucified. This story today hinges on the identity of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? This is the key question that Jesus asked of his disciples. And and Jesus, he's not been talking much so far about his identity. In fact, if you remember, he's actually chosen to reveal himself gradually, almost reluctantly along the way. He's often been warning his followers to keep his miraculous activity quiet. He's often been withdrawing from conflict instead of engaging conflict, though he did engage a little. He's engage, withdraw, engage, withdraw. This is the only time in the book of Matthew that Jesus asks his disciples directly about his identity. So again, this is a monumental passage that we're in today. His ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing, uh, it's done and, and, and said great things. He said things that through the revelation of the Father, uh, people might perceive, notice, observe that he would be the Christ. But he's not directly told people this. He's not directly said, I am the Christ. 
I am the Messiah. He's been indirect, mostly uh, warning his followers to keep his miraculous activity quiet and withdrawing from conflict as he goes. So here Jesus has come to the border of Israel. He's in a city with the temple for each of these foreign gods. And he asks his disciples this key question. Who do people say the son of man is? The son of man, a great third person reference Jesus uses for himself. So in verse 13b, who do people say the son of man is? And it's interesting to note the initial responses of his disciples. The first response is John the Baptist. I guess that makes sense. If you remember back, Herod thought Jesus might be a reincarnated or resurrected John the Baptist. They also mentioned Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament, who they were expecting to return. They mentioned Jeremiah or maybe some other prophets. So it's clear, you know, that the, the people in this area, they have like a sense of uh, the sensational. They have a sense for or a relationship with the superstitious view of who he is. They recognize he's something. This miraculous activity, it must mean something. There's a recognition that he's special. He's kind of otherworldly. But even though their view of him is special, otherworldly, even though their view of him is pretty high, you know, I mean, oh, resurrected. Wow. I mean, they're kind of, I mean, would we just assume, oh, this guy's a resurrected figure? I don't know that we would go there. They got that he was something pretty special, but they didn't get that he was the special one. Their view of him was high, but at the end of the day, not high enough. And I, I think this is still the predominant view of Jesus in our world, is it not? Jesus is a great teacher, maybe you've heard. Jesus was a prophet. I, I've, I don't know that I've ever found somebody who reads the teachings of Jesus who thinks that they're not useful, who thinks that they're not beautiful, who thinks that they wouldn't be worth following. Very few people have a problem with Jesus' teaching. I would say the world around us uh, has a high view of Jesus, but still not high enough. Why? Because the world around us does not acknowledge Jesus as the divinely appointed Messiah. And certainly not in any way that's exclusive, right? That he's our only hope, that he's the only way to salvation. So folks, you know, I've got to start by warning you that thinking highly of Jesus is not enough. And so in verse 15, Jesus digs deeper. Now his question is aimed not just at uh, who the people in the town think that he is. Now he aims his question right at his disciples. He says, but what about you? What about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? In verse 14, this is the key question for all of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the key question. I believe it's the most important question that you'll ever answer with your life. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter, in verse 16, we see Peter's declaration. It's not veiled. It's actually very bold. In verse 16, we see Peter say, you are the Messiah. In some translations, you are the Christ, the rescuer that the people were anticipating. He goes on to say, you are the son of the living God. Where you have this declaration of faith, you have the beginnings of a church. Peter's confession is the start of the church that Jesus came to establish. It's interesting that he says, son of the living God. 
in reference, perhaps, in comparison, in contrast, perhaps, to the gods of the city who were not living. Peter says, the Messiah, the son of the living God. This title has incited the implication or the allusion to the death-defeating Jesus who will conquer the grave. This is the living God. We worship the living God. It's not a story about a dead God. It's not a story that's completely in the past. Jesus Christ is son of the living God. Don't miss the little things. The son of man is the son of God. I love that play on words. The son of man is the son of God. And, and th- you guys, this is half of the gospel at least. Half of the gospel at least is recognizing Jesus Christ as the son of God. And I think we'll get into the other half of the gospel next week as we talk about the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But half of the gospel is to recognize that Jesus Christ is the son of God. This is a monumental passage because in this passage, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And it leads to the establishment of the church. And we're going to see more about that in verse 18. Therefore, you guys, the central doctrine of the church's teaching is Jesus' divine sonship. This is the main thing here at Exeter Valley Church, at at any church that would proclaim Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the central doctrine, Jesus' divinity, his sonship. Any true church preaches Christ and Christ alone. We can tell a true church from a false church by this doctrine. Where the doctrine of Christ is central, we have true teaching. Where anything else becomes a thing or the main thing, we have a false church. False churches preach something other than Christ. Perhaps it's works-based righteousness. The more you do, the better you are. Perhaps it's Torah observance that we saw like from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Any system where earning your way to salvation is a doctrine, is a false system. So we find that Peter's confession is this rock that we're going to read about in verse 18. Which brings me to verse 17. Verse 17 is a beautiful part of this story because it it puts us in relationship to the Father's gift of revelation Jesus responds to Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Those are Peter's words. And Jesus responds to him by saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, that's the name Peter went by mostly up until this point. Simon, son of Jonah. That's pretty remarkable. And again, another play on words. If Jesus is the son of God, Peter, who's now confessed Jesus as the Christ is referred to as the son of Jonah. Who is Jonah? Jonah was the name we think of Peter's father. Also could be, uh, could be called John in some gospels. And, and Jonah and John, I guess, are the very close words in the original language. Uh, why, do, why does Matthew use Jonah instead of John? Why does he use that version instead of John? It's interesting. I don't know exactly, but we just read about the sign of Jonah. I've read that a lot of times in scripture, certain names are used in order to connect you back to the past. Remember, we've talked about how the faith uh, that Jesus passed on is a remembering faith. 
Remember how I provided for you. Remember the things of the past and what those stories meant. So perhaps referring to him as Simon, son of Jonah, has, a, um, has some special significance. It's really cool when you start to pay attention to the little things in Scripture and you see the way that Scripture is hyperlinked. Really cool. He goes on to say, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This revelation of the truth was not made by flesh and blood. What does that mean? Essentially, it's a recognition that mankind in his weakness, us, humankinds, in our weakness, could not know who Jesus is without the revealing work of the Father in heaven. Jesus tells Peter, this has been revealed to you by my Father, not by your own flesh and blood. Listen, you guys, we must not deify Peter It's not Peter's character. It's not Peter's religious sensitivity. It's not his sincerity. It's not his openness or anything in himself that enables him to make this good confession. Jesus says this confession was not revealed by flesh and blood. Peter's faith is a gift from Jesus' Father in heaven. It was not attained by any human resource. This means that Peter... And, and I believe us as well cannot take credit for our faith. It's 100% gift. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching here. Also, and get this, both Christ and faith in Christ are gifts. So Matthew's gospel has emphasized uh, receiving faith. I, I've talked a lot about faith. I talked uh, at Christmas about letting earth receive her king. I've talked a lot about receiving faith because Matthew's gospel talks a lot about the importance of faith. But it's not fully true to say that Christ is God's work and faith is our responsibility. I don't think that that's fully true. I don't think that's what's being taught in this passage or elsewhere. That God has done his part, for example, in sending Christ, but then it's our job to do something else in order for that to matter. In Ephesians, or let's start, let's start with John, the Gospel of John, 1, 12, and 13, two verses here. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, like Peter, he gave the right to, became, to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Who are these children born of? Not even a husband's will. These children are born of God, it says in in John's gospel. Then the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, by grace, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So you've been saved by grace, through faith. And how did you have that faith? The Bible teaches that it's a gift. Even our faith is a gift of God. It's initiated by the revelation of the Father. In Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, and I, I've been kind of gentle about, how, about pointing to this because I didn't want to stir up too much too soon. But in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, it says it this way, all things have been committed to me by my Father. This is Jesus speaking. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Faith is a gift. The revelation of Jesus' Messiahship is a gift from the Father. Matthew 13, 11, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, 
John 15, 16, another gospel passage. You did not choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. The gift of faith is that. It's a gift to be received. Uh, Also, further evidence for this idea, Matthew 4 and 9 are, are stories that we've read already where the disciples are called to Jesus. And notice that none of the disciples initiated their being called to Jesus. Jesus calls them. You did not choose me. I chose you, it says in John 15. And and I know that the topic of God's role in initiating our faith, it um, it can cause questions to arise. What does it mean that God chose me? I didn't choose him. He chose me. What does that mean? And uh, I, I don't want to get too caught up in the, in the controversy, right? Uh, because I, I believe, and I think I've said this multiple times, that there's a, we see in Scripture like a divine tension between God's sovereign acting, his sovereign will. Look, God can do whatever God wants to do. He is without limit, without limit. He's in control of everything. Scripture teaches that principle clearly. So there's this tension between what God can do And then our responsibility in that, when you completely master that concept, will you come and let me know so that you can teach from right here? All I know for sure is that we see in scripture this tension between what God sovereignly wills and then what he allows us to participate in, what he gives us responsibility over. And here we have this tension in our faith. So I wanted just to help you along with this and and, and give you some of what I've read this week. And I wanted to offer you first the perspective of Martin Luther, because Luther, uh, a great church father, part of the, the, the Reformation, he took great joy in the knowledge of the father's initiating gift of faith. Okay. And, and his thought was that because God's will is so much stronger than human will, it's a good thing if God's in charge of initiating my faith. Have you ever felt like you're just having trouble initiating faith? Have you ever felt like just like doubt or, or struggle come into view? Like, have you ever shown up on a Sunday morning just like not sure that you could conjure up the faith even to sing the songs or to pray the prayers? Haven't a lot of us felt this way? I've felt this way. I've felt this way for sure. I mean, what a gift to know that it's, it's up to God, the Father, to initiate my faith. I don't completely understand what all that means, but if God can initiate my faith, I'm here for it. I'm here for it, and I'm going to ask for it. I'm going to ask for it when I don't feel like it, when I don't have like the courage in my own heart to live in faith, I'm going to ask the Father. I'm so glad that God's will is much stronger uh, than my own human will. You know, also in this verse, we have the good news, you guys, that broken humans can be brought to salvation. This is good news, that salvation is outside of ourselves. It's a gift from God. This is really good news. On your best day, you don't have what it takes. On my best day, I don't have what it takes to meet the righteous standard of God. And thanks be to God who gives me the faith to pursue him, to come to him, to receive his free gift. So uh, this brings us to uh, Jesus' response to Peter. And uh, we'll see that in verse 18. This is the pinnacle of the story. It's where we learn that once we know who Jesus is, 
We can know who it is that we are. Once we know who Jesus is, we, like Peter, can know who we actually are. This is the beauty of confessing Jesus as the Christ. I call this part of the story the commission of Peter. In verse 18, Jesus responds to Peter's confession of faith. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I'm here to say, first and foremost, that a great deal of the church's right understanding of ourselves, a great deal of our understanding of ourselves as a church depends on a right understanding of this verse. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Again, this is the first mention of the church in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the, also the first formal confession of Jesus as Messiah. Notice that the first formal confession of Jesus as Messiah is followed by the first formal reference to the church. Where you have confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, you have the start of a church. So the key question here is this, is Jesus building his church on Peter, the person and the office he now holds? Is Peter the rock? Or is Jesus building his church on the faith of Peter and his confession of Jesus' status of divine Messiah? Is this passage leading us to Peter the person? Or is this passage leading us to Peter the pointer? The one who's pointing to Jesus. And I think that we can have both. The answer can be a little bit both. But we need to get clear on this because, so Peter, you know, Peter was the first Christ pointer. He was the first to confess Jesus as the Messiah. So there's some specialness there. He's unique. That was a one-time moment in history that Peter participated in. But I also believe that it's, it's who Peter was pointing towards that is the key to what the church will be built upon. It's not Peter that the church is going to be built upon. Newsflash. It's not Peter. When Jesus says in the second half of 18, on this rock, I will build my church, we've got to understand what he means by on this rock. Uh, some of you know, I've shared this story a little bit, but when I was uh, trying to discern the call of God on my life, I was considering uh, you know, the career God had given me in coaching and, uh, and, and this call that I was starting to sense into pastoral ministry. Uh, I was in a period where I just needed to pray and get to God. Megan had actually told me, you need to pray because I'm tired of listening to you waffle. And so she said, you give the Lord no rest until you've heard from him again, right? And some of you have heard this story before, uh, bear with me. But uh, one night uh, in, in like a moment of discouragement and maybe the depth of just my almost depression, uh, discouragement, maybe a better word, just feeling really, really, really low. I remember praying to the Lord, like, God, I just, I don't even know how to pray. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what you're leading me towards. I'm just kind of confused. Could you fill me in? And I remember that night in the middle of my thoughts, I heard the Lord's voice interrupt me. His thoughts came into my head, interrupting my thoughts. And he said to me these words, on this rock, I will build my church. And when he said it, I knew exactly what he meant. He was confirming my personal call to participate in his church. And uh, you, know, uh, you know what happened after that is my, as I got clear on what was happening and what God was saying, I started to think of all the reasons why I was not the person to do what he wanted to do with my life. I was thinking like, but I'm, I've got these personal character flaws. 
I haven't conquered all these yet, or I'm just gaining some traction here, God. Are you sure? What about this list? I was thinking about other things in my life that weren't just quite right, that seemed like, you know, I didn't have enough training. I, I wasn't, my character wasn't high enough yet. I was still battling some demons, so to speak. You know, there were relational issues that I just didn't feel I had conquered yet. These are all, like, in a, in a moment, these are all the thoughts that are coming through my head. These are all the reasons why I couldn't be who I thought he was calling me to be. And in that moment, the next thing I heard Jesus say was, I've got this. You can trust me. And I believe today the message for us as a church is that he does have this. We can trust him because Jesus is the rock upon which his church will be built. It's Peter's confession. It's Peter's pointing to Jesus. That's so awesome in this story. Now, some of you have have experience with the Catholic Church, and you know the importance of Peter in the Catholic Church, and um, I I couldn't, like, I'm not the foremost expert on all of this, but I do know the position of our church in this regard, And, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about why we don't think it's the person of Peter who is uniquely special, and why we don't believe or practice what's called papal succession, right, meaning that Peter or the Pope is currently the head of the church. Right? So our view here is that Christ alone is the single authority in the church, and that he has called and appointed many of us to lead in the church, but we are always anchored to the authority of the apostles in scripture. If you look at the, the, uh, the Greek language here, Peter, you guys probably knew this, Peter or Cephas is the name that Jesus gave. So some of us are familiar with that. Peter actually, it means like, the word means like stone uh, or rock. It's almost like a nickname. Some translators I've heard use the word pebble. So it's a singular rock, okay? So then Jesus goes on to say, your name, okay, your name's Peter, pebble, stone, rock. Upon this rock, different word in the Greek, which means more like a foundational stone, like a bedrock. Imagine, uh, remember the story of the wise man built his house upon the rock, right? We, that was in Matthew 7, Was that Matthew, something like that? Matthew seven or eight? That rock, that word for rock is like the firm foundation that you got to dig down to if you want to have a solid construction. So Peter is just a stone, just a pebble. The rock, the firm foundation is Christ. This is good news for us. This is good news for me when I'm sitting in my car thinking, how am I going to do what God has called me to do? It's good news, amen? Amen. Because there's nothing inside of me that has enough to do what he's asked me to do. If I don't have that firm foundation, I'm toast. I'm so glad that Jesus is the rock upon which he builds his church. If you want to talk more about like, why not the person, Peter? Why not papal succession? That's a really long word, isn't it? It didn't seem that long in my notes, but now I'm saying it out loud. I'm like, man, that's like a long smart sounding word. If you want to talk more about that, I think it'd be a great side conversation, but I'm not going to talk more about it in my message here today. Um, So I just want to focus on this idea of what Peter is pointing towards, his confession of Jesus as, as a Christ. This is the foundational concept of the church. The church's singular mission then is not to build the church, but to point to Jesus. What does it say in this passage? Who builds the church? He says, I will build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. 
Man, with me as your pastor, this is great news. I'm telling you, okay, this is really good news that it's Jesus who builds his church. I, I guarantee you some days I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, sorry, I don't mean, maybe don't leave, please. But so, some days, you know, I'm just like, I don't know what we should do next. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if I can make it good enough for anybody to show up. And honestly, in those moments, I just think to myself, like, you got one hope, dude. Point people to Jesus. You could screw it all up. You, like, the music could be bad. You could screw up the mic every dang Sunday. But if you point people to Jesus, you got a chance to build a church. So that's what we're doing here. We're pointing people to Jesus. It's super simple. This is why we go right through the book of Matthew. This is why we're not leaving anything out. We're trying to point people to the story of Jesus. This is the call of, on Peter's life, is to point people to Jesus. And again, I think it's the church's singular mission, not to build, but to point people to Jesus and let him do the building work. And, and, and what will be the fate of this church that Christ is building? This is awesome news as well. Uh, the third part of verse 18 says that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades uh, refers to the realm of the dead. Again, you guys probably knew that. It's kind of like a hell-like concept. Maybe in your translation, it says the gates of hell will not overcome it. And death, was, death is the ultimate function of sin and evil. So thereby, the, the, the gates of Hades is a reference to evil. Notice that it says the gates of Hades. I love this small fact about this passage. The gates. You guys, hell, death, evil is on the defense. The church of Christ is on the offense. This is good news. The church of Christ is on the offense. Death is on the defense. And who's going to win? Who's going to win? The church of Christ will overcome the gates of Hades. Look, Jesus' kingdom family, the church, will have the final victory over evil. Any of you ever chose a team because you knew the team was going to win? I'm telling you, pick Jesus' church. It's the winning team. Jump on the, the winning team. This is the good news that, that the fate of, of Jesus' church is that death will not overcome it. Life is the fate of Jesus' church. In verse 19, uh, Jesus talks about giving Peter the keys of the kingdom. Have you ever, I've, I've heard that phrase used like outside of the Bible as well. Oh, he, he was given the keys of the city. Did we still do that? Is that a, a thing that people still do? They used to give like dignitaries like, oh, hey, thanks for visiting. Here's the keys to the city. I never really knew what that meant. I wasn't exactly sure what it meant in this context, but I can tell you now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the keys of the kingdom are given to you by preaching the gospel. When you have a key, you have a certain authority, don't you? There's an authority Christ is giving to Peter by his preaching of the gospel. Because of Peter's like goodness? No, because of Peter's faith, the faith that the Father in heaven gave to Peter. Look, all who confess and point to Jesus are a part of his family. Also though, with the authority that's been given to Peter, all who reject Jesus as the divine Christ are bound to use the language of the passage. So to preach Jesus faithfully is to preach his kingdom ways faithfully. The keys that bind and loose, they're not just teachings. They're a call to discipleship. The keys that bind and loosen are a call to discipleship to Jesus. What is discipleship? In layman's terms, discipleship is just really, actually, following Jesus. 
It's not just professing faith, it's living faith. It's symbolized in the church by baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper, but it's lived out through obedience and repentance. Obedience and repentance, the way that we live out our faith in Jesus. I think as we go on here, one of the things that I, I, I enjoyed learning this week is that we can learn from this concept of binding and loosing that Peter and the new people of God, we now succeed or follow after Abraham and the ancient people of God as mediators of faith and as the means of grace in the world. Check this out. Genesis 12, 3. God said this to Abraham. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When you have the keys of the kingdom, the world around you is blessed through your life. This is good news. Is it? I mean, wouldn't we want to be the kind of church that blessed the world around us? In Matthew 10, 40, Jesus said it this way. He who receives you, the disciples, this is who he was talking to, receives me. He that receives you receives me. We have opportunity to extend the kingdom to the world around us by proclaiming the gospel. This is in contrast to the way that the religious leaders of Jesus' day lived. Matthew 23, 13, we've not got to yet, but Matthew 23, 13 is filled, or Matthew 23 is filled with all these woes. Woe to you. He's talking to the Pharisees, religious leaders. He says, woe to you in, in verse 13, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock. You lock people out of the kingdom. Peter's confession was the kind of key that opens the kingdom of heaven. The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whose Jesus has just brought us out from under. Their teaching locked people up. They locked people up by deflecting them vertically from faith in the divinity of Jesus. And they also locked people up by horizontally stressing sacrifice and religious activity rather than mercy. From this point forward, the church replaces the temple. This is good news. The apostles' teaching from this point forward, the holy scriptures that we study every week, these are our authorities. The religious leaders have been replaced as the holder of the keys of the kingdom. This is good, right? This is news worth preaching. This is worth running out into the streets and telling your neighbors about. But that's not what happens next. Look at verse 20. Quite the opposite happens. It says that then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why is Jesus telling them not to tell anybody? This doesn't make any sense to me when I read these verses. We've heard him say things like this, though, several times already in the book of Matthew. And I think there's a few reasons why. The first one has to do with timing, and the second one, I think, also has to do with timing. Firstly, though, I think one of the reasons that Jesus does not want this word spread prematurely is that he knows that this will cause a real ruckus. If Jesus is out there and the word gets too strong, I mean, he's already withdrawing all the time from the religious leaders. He already knows that, that Herod wants him killed. He knows that Herod has killed his best friend, John the Baptist, right? So he knows this will cause a huge ruckus, and it'll probably get him killed, and he's got more work to do before he dies. He knows that he's going to die. He knows what the end result will be, but he's got more work to do. And so he says, don't tell him yet. 
I think this is incredibly important for us as believers. Like, what are you waiting for? In what ways are you waiting for freedom to come, for salvation to come, for redemption to come in your life? And just wondering, like, God, when? When, God? See, because sometimes God's timing does not make sense to us on the surface, does it? But I guarantee you, God always has a plan and God is always on time. Not one day in his life has God ever been late. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And I believe that when we look back in the final days, we'll look back and we'll see why God did what he did and when he did it. And so we can live in faith. I think the second, the second reason that he's warning them is, is also related to the timing, as I said. But it's just this idea that Jesus is a different type of Messiah. This is, Jesus is not the Messiah that they were expecting. And if they go about preaching his divinity without preaching his death, people may get the wrong idea. In the next passage, next week, the next seven verses, Jesus says that if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. See, uh, Peter gets rebuked in the next passage. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is one of the reasons that I don't believe Peter in and of himself is anything all that special besides the Jesus that he points us towards. Jesus says in the very next passage, get behind me, and he calls Peter Satan. Peter's not all that special. The person who's special is who Jesus was pointing to. But anyways, uh, preaching Jesus' divinity without preaching his death and resurrection might get people the wrong idea. See, because Jesus had to die. This is the story. This is what, what Jesus came to earth to do was not just to live, not just to gain power, but to die. And yet the people were expecting a political power. They wanted to be freed militaristically. They wanted to live in power. They wanted to be free politically. And this wasn't the type of Messiah that Jesus was. I think his warning is in part to give them the opportunity to see the second half of his gospel. The whole story is not just the divinity of Jesus. There's the second half where God took our place on the cross and died the death that we should have died. And then, of course, we have the story of resurrection and the hope that we can have in Jesus' death and resurrection. So anyways, in this passage, we've seen the importance of Peter's pointing to Jesus as the divine Messiah. We've seen how his confession of Jesus' identity led to the divine call on his life and the establishment of the church as we know it. We've seen a church built not on the work of a man, but on the faith in the son of the living God. We've seen a church built by the singular headship of Jesus who faithfully uses us as stones. Jesus, the bedrock upon which his church is built. We've seen a church given the keys to the kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth, we'll hear Jesus later say in Matthew 28. The heavenly authority, not to lord over people, but to bless the world. Through us, Christ will be a blessing to the world. So, so what's the point? What's the application? What does all this mean to you and to me? I think that we are called to be Christ pointers. Not experts, Christ pointers. Not cool or, or hip or any of those things. Those, those are sweet, being cool and hip. No, I, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. But our call is to be Christ pointers. It's not us and our lives. It's the Christ that we point to. We've got to point people to the lordship of Jesus. We've got to make that the main thing. And not just through our talk, but through our walk. Not just through our, our verbal confession, but through the confession of Jesus' lordship through the way that we live our lives. 
You know what we call people who say one thing and then live out another thing? Hypocrites, fake, two-faced. The walk and the talk. This is how we confess the lordship of Jesus. Anyone feel a little overwhelmed? Noel, how am I going to do that? I feel a little two-faced. I I yelled at my kids yesterday. I yelled at the ref yesterday. I I didn't do that, I don't think, yesterday. Reuben could be my my judge, but you know what I mean, and and, and I can relate, right? How are we going to do this, line up our walk and our talk? What if my walk is having a hard time lining up with my talk? Maybe I should just get silent and not say anything. But I'm here to say, as I close today, take heart, friends. And remember, faith is a gift from our Father in heaven. It's a gift. Faith is a gift from our Father in heaven, who we've learned loves to give good gifts to his children. If you struggle, when you struggle, when your faith is weak, You can ask him for the gift of faith, and you can trust him to come through. Let's pray. 